Most programmers spend lots of their time reading content about software. Since our field changes so rapidly, engineers consume news and editorials voraciously, trying to keep up with the impossibly fast pace of technology. The Practical Dev is a collection of blog posts, editorials, and interviews that was created to help with that end. Ben Halpern is the creator of Practical Dev, and he joins the show today to discuss software editorialism. The goal of the Practical Dev is to help developers grow and learn, and Ben is working towards that goal by providing a platform for engineers to write and share long-form content. He syndicates my podcast, Software Engineering Daily, through his site, and he has created a great website to consume the podcast. It's honestly better to consume it from the Practical Dev than it is from my own website, SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com. Ben Halpern is the creator of The Practical Dev, a collection of programming resources to help programmers grow and learn. Ben, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here, Jeff. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to talk to you too. So you create lots of software media and you consume lots of it too. So you're very familiar with this landscape. What are the problems with the media sources that software engineers are consuming? Well, I'm not sure there's specific problems. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but there is a fundamental issue in that the people who need to sort of create these things are also the people that are really busy creating these things and can't always talk about it or necessarily like go about creating the highest quality content. So there's a bit of a problem there, but I don't try to necessarily address the problem myself. I just try to uh, put interesting stuff out there. So what are the main resources? I mean, obviously, we have practical dev, but what are the other main resources where people get their software engineering content? For me, I get most of my software engineering content through news aggregators like Hacker News and Reddit, and also my podcast subscriptions, your podcast, and a few others I listen to, like, probably consume several hours of podcasts every day. And that's sort of where I get my stuff, but there's definitely room for more interesting content out there and more production of well-made content around this whole programming thing we do, which is pretty interesting to us, at least. It's definitely pretty interesting. I mean, that's certainly why I started the podcast. The content sources where you... Because that's basically the same places I get my content yeah. from. Are in the, from those content sources, do you think there are any latent biases? Can you expand on what you mean by that? So, do you think there are any biases that we may have by, you know, even though like we get our news from aggregators or from somewhat social sites like Reddit, there are these bubbles that can occur where we get trapped in areas where we might have biases. So, do do you think there are any biases that are prevalent among these software engineering content sources? Oh, yeah. The algorithm that aggregates these sort of things is like inherently biased towards some amount of lowest common denominator concepts and also like some amount of novelty, some clickbait. I mean, because things are, I think, voted on based on titles a lot of the time. They're, things are sort of aggregated in an inherently biased way. It's usually like a really good way compared to like potential alternatives, but there's a tremendous amount of bias throughout the system. And just like bias towards fundamental ideas about how we decide what software to use, what to ingest, like what decisions to make, like biases towards frameworks that make it easy to create Hello World apps, even if the if it's fundamentally not the right choice, just like, which I think leads to sort of the bias in, in terms of the content that's being produced and what people are saying. And it's, yeah, it's like all over the place. There's a, there's not always the right amount of things being produced there's also sort of a bias towards really digestible things on a daily basis because like any one really complex item might not necessarily catch on so there's a bias towards digestibility and i'm not sure like what's right and what's wrong but like those are definitely the circumstances i think in terms of what gets produced and what gets ingested Yeah, I think the digestibility thing is very true. And it seems like if you have a complex idea that the way to 
get it across to people is to build in virality. It's like the compulsion of the crowd has become so strong towards not wanting to consume anything that's really long. You know, it's like, oh, Docker, you know, you're up and running in 10 minutes and then you, you get it, then you understand. But if Docker took 45 minutes to be convincing, then, you know, maybe it wouldn't have caught on. So the type of writing that you do on Practical Dev is somewhere between journalism and editorialism. You have a lot of like posts that are kind of somewhere between like business and strategic, but also have to do with the art and science of coding. What do you think of the kind of content that you're creating? Is it blogging? Is it journalism? What do you think about it? That's interesting. And I, on the note of like digestibility, if I'm going to talk about the stuff I do, it's like totally taking advantage of those concepts. I specifically tailor my content to the medium, like we're probably going to get into this, but like the reason I'm popular at all is the jokes and stuff. And uh, I don't know, like the content I produce is really just, I fundamentally like don't try to get ahead of myself and determine where I stand with labeling, like the sort of stuff I do, because it's really evolved really naturally. And that's been, it's been a real driving force for the whole thing. But I really just try to take some sort of an artistic approach and write about things I find interesting, but I'm also trying to bring on people who have a better take or like try to promote ideas that I don't really know much about, but I know are like fundamentally interesting to other people. Like try to like balance that idea between what I find interesting and what I think is fundamentally interesting and or helpful or hilarious for people, that kind of thing. So what are those ideas? Because I think that there is all this unexplored territory at the cross-section of software engineering and journalism, and that's partly why I do this podcast. There's all these areas that could be explored more. And like you said, the average software developer does not have time to journal out their life and turn, you know, open up their world to the blogosphere. So what are these topics that you're kind of exploring or that you're talking about here? And what are the elements of creativity and humor that you're injecting into your writing? Well, from my perspective, I really try to think about the people involved, fundamental like things that have to happen for some of this stuff to get shipped. And it's it sort of blows my mind sometimes how like little we sometimes think about the people and it like amazes me how anything gets built in this sense. Like, and I really don't want to like come out with all these think pieces on the subject because it's really like a nebulous territory. Like what is a think piece? I'm not sure. Like I know the definition, but I know when I see one, which is sort of just like some take on some subject that really is just, we need to end unit testing. Yeah. Or sometimes it takes the form of a rant or something, but like I'm even thinking more like in the general sense of media and journalism, there's a lot of really sort of cheap ideas that just get published because it's easy to come up with a think piece rather than basing something on some amount of research or original ideas. Like having a hot take on something or just like a general like uninspired opinion on something is like very easy. And when you're talking about these a technical subject, but like focusing on some of the non-technical aspects, it's really easy to just like write about your opinion on like agile development or like some like specific management problem. And people usually relate to them and they have a chance at like going viral. And But I don't like find them very enriching and and I don't want to put stuff out there that's just sort of junk food for the mind. And not that I like don't do that sometimes. It's like well, so in contrast, what are the types of things, like what's a piece of content you wrote recently that you were proud of? Oh, oh boy. I'm not sure. Or a piece of content yeah. that got published on Practical Dev that you were proud of. Yeah. So I'm sort of reasonably proud of everything. I think I wrote a blog post about how I just specifically optimized the website using and like sort of got into the technical details. And it was mostly about the technical items, but I really like, I took the approach of explaining like what my basic thoughts around the subjects of complexity and like how we sort of approach these things and like from a semi-technical perspective and I thought it like really was like fundamentally interesting like I took a really practical approach to solving a problem and I like and I wrote about that and I thought it was like really based and nice but I'm not even sure like the content I produce right now on the website 
is necessarily reflective of my ideals yet because it's just sort of in its nascent stage. I think the content I've been producing on Twitter for a while is like a little more reflective of the voice. And most of what I post is not is like I post links and stuff, which, you know, you could also find on Hacker News, but uh, it's a little bit of curation and people seem to appreciate the the general output and sort of editorial approach to the whole thing. Yeah. And one thing that if people aren't familiar with the name Practical Dev, they're probably familiar with these O'Reilly, <laughs> these fake O'Reilly book covers that you make that are pretty funny. They go viral sometimes. You know, it's like, you know, searching for the answer on Stack Overflow. And then it's, it's like a, a, an O'Reilly book cover with just like searching for the answer on Stack Overflow on the cover with a sloth or something, yeah. which is pretty hilarious. And those things have gone viral. And they are kind of trivialities, but I think they embody a lot of what you're getting at with the practical dev, which is that like software engineering is somewhere between this art and science. And there is an amount of levity in the community. And sometimes that levity gets forgotten. And so it's, it's very tricky to write material that straddles this chasm between art and science. But so much of software engineering is about these touchy-feely aesthetics. It's not necessarily about hard and fast rules. It's about general principles. So much of the best writing about software, it doesn't feel like it's hard and fast. It, it feels somewhat philosophical, even though oftentimes you have hard and fast rules that you're applying. Like, for example, in that, in that post that you wrote about how you get the high performance out of practical dev, how you've architected the site... And you write about things from a standpoint that is empirically based, it's fact-based, but it's also your own editorialization about your own theories that you see coming out of those facts. So why did you develop that combination of editorialism, that combination of art and science? Oh, yeah. I mean, that really harkens back to my general sort of upbringing with the, and how I got into programming and how the approach that's always been important to me and just like the fundamental like therapy I get out of making fun of what I do sometimes and uh, as a software engineer especially one who is the CTO of a small startup where we have to like genuinely decide when we're going to cut corners for purposes that you wouldn't do on software that was like deemed an ongoing concern but these corners do get cut by everybody which is hilarious but I feel like I can justify them sometimes but then I like have to make fun of them as well. And it's like, this is the truth in software development. And when I listen to your guests on your podcast or like some other articles, people often talk about how they applied some database or some idea or some academic paper and how wonderful that is. And there's just, I feel like people really gloss over all the warts involved in the process. Like, I just posted yesterday on, on the Twitter feed this funny story I'd heard before and I just like remembered it and had to post it about the Windows 95 operating system, how when it was in beta, it, it had patched a sort of like memory issue that made SimCity crash and they couldn't really do anything about it to make, so to maintain backwards compatibility that was specifically hard coded into Windows 95 to ask if SimCity was running. Like, not just, like, <laughs> applications that, you know, somewhere in Windows 95, they asked at all times, I think, is SimCity running? And it's like, that. that is, like, really just the most <laughs> insane thing to me and is, like, hilarious. And I'm, like, I haven't been doing this forever. And I've been, like, in and out of software. I dropped out of computer science in college and I got back into it after and I've, like, I fundamentally constantly feel like there's this idealized form of computer science and software and then there's like what the hell actually happens. And it's just way too ridiculous sometimes for me not to just talk about it as much as I can. Yeah, it's quite ironic, that type of occurrence. Those are the types of things that happen in software that really make me glad I'm in this career also because there's just so much absurd irony that is... It's actually a production fix, like that Windows 95 thing. And it's just like, wow, how did this come to fruition? But there it is. So I think many developers 
they get their creative side satiated by writing code. But when you get a creative itch, it seems like sometimes you are compelled to write English. You write a blog post rather than writing code. How does that creative process differ for you, writing a blog post or writing an editorial versus writing code? Well, for one thing, I just, it's nice that I don't have to like maintain it once it's published (laughs) versus the code, which, uh, so like, I feel like I don't have to be very disciplined with some of my publishing and I can sort of just get my thoughts out there and then they're done. And like code, writing code is really awesome most of the time. Maintaining code is where things get frustrating and stuff. And I mean, we only have so many hours in the day. And for a while, I was writing a lot of code in my spare time and in my day job. And I, I, mean, I still do that. Like I write more code than I can like sometimes maintain. And that's the problem Like where you put something out there and it just snowballs into more and more work and uh, more and more like things that have to be done if it catches on or like maybe you really want it to catch on and you just have to keep putting in more more effort and there's it's fundamentally like just really difficult and I don't even know how some people maintain their open source projects while doing it for free and also having a day job and relationships and stuff and I strive for like some element of balance and by publishing about programming, it really gives me the opportunity to ensure I'm learning a lot as I go and like, and doing programming to support it. I feel like the architecture of my website is really like thought out around this idea of publishing. And like, literally, like, it's the easiest thing ever to make a blog. Anyone can do it. You can, it will take you like five minutes. But by building, all that stuff from scratch, like everything supporting it, it's really sort of feeding it. It's an interesting thing, like to build this software to like support the words and like making all the choices about the design and everything. It all sort of runs together in a in a way that's like sort of fascinating to me and from a creative perspective. So on Practical Dev, you've done some interviews with big name developers like David Heinemeier Hansen, Christopher Shadow. John Snyers, when you sit down to interview an engineer, what are you trying to learn? Well, I've only done interviews with people who I had a sort of a burning question for them. And even if it was not like a specific question, just a burning like idea about what they were working on. And like when I contacted DHH, I did that out of being sort of interested in his thoughts about the kind of future of Rails because he's a really great embodiment of the human element of software development. Rails sort of is just whatever the hell he says it is. And uh, it's more of an idea than a piece of code because it really covers so much. And it's like kind of exists as this historical thing right now in web development, but it's like an ongoing idea. And it's like this very interesting area to me. And uh and so that's what made me want to like ask some questions, but I also like, I did it with an approach, like hopefully I can just actually ask some questions that are generally interesting and not just things that are specifically interesting to me. But it was really fascinating that I could just email him. And at this point, I hadn't even made the website yet. I had emailed him saying, I'm going to make this website. Would you like to be, to be the first article on it? And he said, sure, which is kind of insane. Like he's a very notable figure in our industry and I've emailed other people like much more notable than him for in a lot of ways and uh they've gotten back to me and said no i'm busy at least like it's kind of crazy how accessible everyone is and i just try to like leverage that accessibility for things that are interesting to me and i hope interesting to other people and at this point like as we're recording this like there hasn't been i haven't published a ton of volume and i don't think anything i've even published has been like of the kind of quality i hope it is but i think people sort of get the idea that i'm trying to make good stuff. And there's definitely a loyal sort of fan base growing, which is pretty cool. And it really helps me like actually achieve, I think, some of the long-term ideas for putting good stuff out into the universe. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of experiencing that like there's a following has developed for the podcast and it makes me not want to publish anything that's like shoddy. Like it makes (laughs) me really want to raise the content 
quality. So speaking of that, you're a listener of this podcast. You listen to Software Engineering Daily. How much of what I talk about is relevant to your work? Because I'm not doing engineering day to day. So I sometimes worry that I'm losing my connection to the average blue collar developer. Someone on the survey, when I, there's a listener survey recently, it's actually still up. If anybody wants to fill out the survey, it's on the website and I read all the feedback, but Somebody posted, like, it sounds like you're starting to do shows on stuff that you have not worked with before. And I'm like, well, that's most of the shows, actually. <laughs> it's been the way the whole time. But but it does make me worry that I'm losing my connection to how people actually write software because I'm not doing it day to day. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, how much of what I talk about is actually relevant to you? I feel like, to me, I don't listen to your podcast because... Any of the technology or is necessarily relevant to me. Some of it is, but it's pretty random whether or not it is. Like you produce a lot of stuff, and uh, and I'm only going to use one version of the thing you're talking about necessarily, or like none of them. Like uh, <laughs> like in my day to day, I'm going to use like a handful of languages, maybe. Like sometimes you get away with using like one language, one framework, one database, and often those are like the long, the ones everyone uses anyway, and. Uh, but you get into the ideas behind these sort of things and it's fundamentally more food for thought than anything. And certainly like there's occasional flaws, but like with anything or like too much focus on like one thing that like may or may not be relevant to someone else. But to me as like a consumer, I feel like I can be pretty happy with the idea that you're just covering interesting topics that I can uh, learn about from a outsider's perspective which is like why I listen to podcasts in the first place to sort of learn about things I didn't really know about. Technically, I typically read more about subjects I need to have a deeper understanding of on a day-to-day basis or like a technical blog post that like explains to me how to work with Babel or something if I'm trying to use ES6 or in JavaScript or something. And and that stuff like does tons of podcasts about that too, but I like to listen to podcast to sort of just satiate my fear of missing out on some of these topics without having to like actually, you know, I'm not going to learn 90% of what you talk about in my lifetime unless I just wanted to have some academic breadth of knowledge, which isn't really important to me in terms of actually like producing software. And so, yeah, I feel like you're producing a, a diversity of content in order to hit on some sort of concept like as a whole it's ultimately fruitful and awesome to listen to as an individual item each one thing might be not useful or whatever and you produce content every day and it's like totally easy to like look at the title and just decide that's probably not gonna be interesting to me (laughs) but and i'd certainly do that but with your podcast i pretty much listen to all of it at least like and i'll like quit halfway through if it's boring but uh and so there are also episodes i mean you've messaged me before you're like that episode is interesting but i disagreed with half of it so what are (laughs) the things where you listen and you disagree with me yeah so i'm not sure like exactly what you're referring to but i'm sure i've done that which is totally fine by the way i mean i'm 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 totally off the cuff all the time with like absurd absurd opinions and stuff i can't remember exactly what i was talking about but i assume i disagreed with you on some element of fundamental ideas about like working and stuff and like I I know that you have like your own personal opinions on like how people should think about careers and the workplace and those sort of things which is probably what I I wouldn't bother to message you and tell you I disagreed with like your opinion on like GraphQL versus Falcor or something (laughs) like that wouldn't really like interest me like I mean I, I might message one of your guests to tell them that but as far as anything i would disagree with you on it would probably be more like your rants on something or other and maybe i do agree with you on something but i don't agree with you on other things and i could definitely like find myself debating you on like these fundamental economic or social issues which bleed themselves in but like that's well so let's so let's go there how should a developer be approaching her or his career today Yeah. So in relative terms to how you've sort of talked about it, there's sort of these fundamental ideas about like the economics of starting your own thing versus the 
your career goals and everything like that. And uh, I mean, if anything, I would sort of debate you on like the notion that there are general guidelines for like how to approach your career. I think like radically different things work for different people. And there's so much variation in like the day-to-day elements of being a software engineer that have nothing to do with the technology and like the future of the craft and like loyalty to your employer and what that means versus what you can do on your own or like and what the risks involved are and like personally I'm like involved in startups and involved in kind of crazy shit in software but I think there's a ton of value in uh I think like a lot of people I would totally not suggest the sort of stuff that works for me at all. Like I would say that that's like the worst thing you could ever do. And there's a lot of opportunities in software to be just sort of a lifer who works on sort of boring software. And, uh, and I think that's like a really great opportunity. And like the industry really needs people who are sort of boring and stuff. Okay. Okay. So here's, here's where I completely disagree because I think that we have these signals from the media and from our culture that suggest that that is an admirable thing. That if you are of the lucky 0.01% to learn how software works and you have the opportunities to work in software, that it is okay to take your golden ticket to big corporation and work on maintaining crappy software where you get paid a hundred grand and they make a million dollars off of you per year, not even for the financial aspect of it do I think it's absurd, but for the waste in human leverage, because the capability that many of these developers have, like, look, don't get me wrong, certainly there's like people who are in debt or, you know, they're immigrants and they're working for their citizenship. In those contexts, I can imagine it making a whole lot of sense to go work for a big corporation. But I I think a big portion of what I reject is this notion that it is okay if you are, you know, if you grew up as a upper middle class or middle class, even lower middle class person, and you go to school, you go to your corporation, and then you become a lifer because I see it as wasteful from a utilitarian perspective because the modern day point of view of a software engineer is that you have so much leverage and this is kind of a new development which is why there's kind of a disconnect which is why i think there's a societal disconnect because this has not been around for a long time where you can just like pick up a laptop and build a business on your own i don't mean to sound like an infomercial or something like quit your job today and call blah 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 take out a business loan or whatever It's, it's it's not really like that it's more like there's this giant wealth of open source software that is growing and compounding on itself day to day. The cost of compute is going to zero. Everybody has a smartphone, so they're all potentially your customer. And the number of business opportunities has grown exponentially with all of these. Each of these aspects, it compounds on one another. And the media and the corporations, it is not in their interest to push this idea because they would much rather push the ideas of of fear and you should and and oh you work at square oh you work at palantir oh you know you work at uber like it, these things are so sexy like why is this servility so sexy for yeah, me yeah. it's it's almost appalling that <laughs> there is this rejection of the opportunity by these people who are so gifted and and look don't get yes. me wrong i am as guilty of this as the next person because i'm not even writing software i'm merely reporting on it, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes appalled at myself for my own lack of confidence to go out and write software. So there is some hypocrisy even in this message, but that almost makes it even more clearly, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But th- so, that's where yeah. I'm getting so, at with, with, yeah. with my philosophies. I totally understand what you mean. And from my own personal approach, that totally jives. I've never worked at a big software company. I once applied and I was offered a job working at eBay one time and I didn't take it and I'm still making less money (laughs) at my startup than I would have got as a starting salary there. So like I've fully embraced sort of these things you're talking about. But I think what's good for like in a macro sense for all of society is not necessarily good advice for the individual from in terms of like what's going to satisfy them going forward. Tragedy of the commons. Yeah. I mean, so like I agree with you in the macro, but like I, I think that advice is 
really like generally not like great for the individual. Maybe it's great for like some generic individual, but I feel like there's this lack of one size fit all approach when it comes to that idealism. And also I think you're coming at it from the perspective, you live in Seattle and that, did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Austin, basically the same thing. But you sort of like, you live where like Amazon and Microsoft are, which probably has painted your opinion on some of these, like what it represents, like what some of the potential like cult of these of these companies represent the intellectual like, strip mine. Yeah, I mean, like you interviewed. I'm not sure who his name, but like the person behind GeekWire one time, and like, and I'd never heard of that website before, and I've checked it out since and stuff. And it's kind of amazing to me that that website is sort of like covering Seattle tech giants, <laughs> which is like kind of it like makes sense. Like somebody, you know, like there's good reason to cover lots of things, but like that's sort of a hilarious thought to me that like that is a, a niche that's <laughs> worth covering. And I think there is totally, I don't like really, I'm definitely the iconoclastic approach really jives with me. Definitely more interested in doing my own thing than just falling in line. But I think there's a lot of great opportunity to be like personally fulfilled by doing day-to-day software and enjoying yourself and doing other things with your other time. And a lot of that comes down to like, whether or not you have good managers or working with good people, but it's fundamentally like a people sort of thing. And in order to have a solid mental health thing going on, you really need to find what works for you. And uh, from my perspective, a lot of the times that's like wholly different for different people. And I think, yeah, I would definitely never... I agree with that. But the thing is like, what worries me is that a lot of people... Don't so you know I went to school at UT and I felt like the vast majority of my classmates you asked them like oh so what kind of cool software projects are you going to be hacking on this weekend they would be like what are you talking about I'm going to play Halo or no I'm I'm going to go golf and it's like okay like those things are fine it makes you happy or whatever I just I don't know. It's, it has surprised, like, you know, when I was in school, like, I would spend the weekends, like, working on weird software projects because I was like, this is, we're building up this very cool artistic skill. This world of software is completely unexplored relative to the types of tools that, that have been created. And, and I, I didn't understand how their brains had been warped such that they are so repressed and they're not tempted to go out and create in their spare time rather than, I I don't know. This is the disconnect that I have. It's probably, I don't think it's as rooted in like, I don't know, the utilitarian responsibility aspect of it as the, I'm just baffled that people don't want, you know, you're given this, this incredible palette of things to work with and you don't go out and paint but hey i can definitely relate more to you than i can to them like personally but i think trying to like if it doesn't come to you on your own like the need to go hacking on the weekends and that sort of thing unless what someone is doing is like fundamentally unhealthy to them they're probably doing what works like best for them and like the working at a rate that is fundamentally right for them but that's like you know, I think this debate is totally unsolvable and stuff, but uh, it certainly has a getting back to the whole topic of this podcast. Certainly, these sort of ideas are a driving force for the sort of stuff I put out there. I try to like empathize and examine the different needs for different people and just come up with ways to sort of deal with these things and talk about these things and try to help people work through these things. And that's where I like try to put my value because there's definitely a lot of noise out there. And I've always found myself like being not too bad at helping people sort of work through these things or at least helping them laugh at some of the bullshit. talk a little bit more about practical dev like because that is obviously the topic of this conversation ostensibly yeah so what is practical dev who can post on it what is your vision for it yeah so right now what it is as like a whole is it started with this twitter account and it now has over fifty thousand followers it's kind of crazy and also like just really like people who really reach out to me and tell me every day that it's 
a part of the routine just checking in on what I'm writing about, which is funny because it's just like other stuff that's on the internet. It's just sort of curated and also like the original sort of stuff. And uh, But then there's also this website, which... I currently allow anyone to publish on, you know, sort of like Medium and that sort of thing. But I curate what shows up on the front page and I certainly curate what I ever tweet about and those sort of things. So it's got its own blog on the front page, but then like within the website, anyone can publish. And uh, and that certainly wasn't necessary for what I was getting at, but in order to make like a platform, but maybe like, you know, I am a software developer and it's really hard to not just like build platforms it's hard to start anything without turning it into a platform. I don't know. But it also hosts... I mean, we have a deal where we post your podcasts on the site. And uh, I'm working with some other podcasts to have them put their stuff on the website. And it's just a nice situation because I want people to come to the website and find nice things to listen to and read about and other sort of stuff like that. But the Practical Developer is... In its current state, sort of like an idea, like a personality, like an editorial approach. I think of it as a magazine, if I'm going to try to like make a metaphor about my approach to the whole thing. And uh, aesthetically, I try to take cues from nice magazines I like rather than like websites I like. And I'm not a very well-trained designer, but I like I really pay attention to the aesthetics and stuff like that. And uh so right now, it's just like a website and a Twitter feed, nothing like too special, but there's something going on there. And it's certainly one of the most interesting things I've ever worked on. And one of the thing, only like by far the most like popular thing I've ever personally done. The Twitter feed gets 10 million impressions a month, which is just like crazy. And these sort of numbers, like I feel like everyone in in the software industry like talks in millions and billions in terms of like users and impressions and stuff. And but like, I've worked on so many projects that I couldn't get my friends to use. And like, that's everything. Like, and I feel like that's like, I, no- I've had this, I've had the exact same, I've yeah. had the exact same issue. Like yeah. all, all the stupid trivial apps I've made, weird advertising platforms and social betting site that I made yeah. that just like nobody <laughs> would use it. And even though I'd asked them to use it and, and then, you know, you'll make a media site and then all of a sudden you have some users and it's really nice, even though it's not a million or a billion people. Yeah. Like, it's nice to have eight people. <laughs> yeah. So, the practical developer has a lot of the sort of features that Medium has and it has other features and whatever. But fundamentally, like, I've approached it as, like, an outlet for some of my creativity, obviously, and an outlet for some of my, like, software frustrations. Like, I, I've been really, really concerned about... The bandwidth, the page load speeds, the idea that nothing should ever jump around on you when you load the page, like things that are just like fundamentally frustrating about the web that are just so dumb to me. And it's a really great outlet for like really doing all those things really well and not loading superfluous things. Like right now, the if you go to like a page I expect to be like an incoming landing page, like an article that's been posted to Reddit or Hacker News or something... All of the relevant styling is in line so that there's no like secondary call to CSS and JavaScript and all that stuff's async and the whole thing is cached and served as quickly as possible. And I thought like as long as I could do that, I was like fundamentally bringing something nice into the world and I could say like, hey, even if Medium has like a trillion users, at least my site's faster. It is. It's it's shockingly fast, actually. Yeah, and it's just like a feature. Like if I can do like one key feature and have developers appreciate it, like the audience I care about, like if anybody cares about these things, it's developers. And if anybody's gonna like appreciate these things, it's developers. And uh and like if I can give people their time back, not waiting for a website to load, I can <laughs> that's like awesome to me. So this all sort of came about like just, you know, if I'm like frustrated with something, like I think like I haven't had explicit motivations for a lot of the stuff I've done with this, which is, I think it's made it really natural. Like it's sort of guided me, but I, I think most things came out of just like one, some random frustration. Like I'm not sure this website would have existed if I wasn't like reading some other news website and frustrated with the ads and the load time or something. Like I'm not sure I would have made this website had that not been the case. And I mean, the whole thing, like, I don't even remember why I started the Twitter feed. And I think it was just because I was posting a lot about software on my personal feed. And I thought like, I don't know if anybody cares about this stuff. So I made a Twitter feed where like, if someone subscribed, they obviously cared about this stuff. 
And that was just sort of, it's like a funny little like birth story that doesn't mean anything. And then it was moving along and gaining some steam. And I was certainly doing stuff to explicitly make it gain steam. You know, I was trying to grow it. I wasn't just like sitting back and letting nothing happen. And then I posted on Medium about my favorite podcasts and I ranked you too low. <laughs> and you reached out to me. And frankly, I'd only just started listening to your podcasts and like, and I also stated that this is a very... And just to be clear, I don't think I reached out to you because I was ranked no, low. Okay, yeah. just, I, yeah, I yeah. don't think that's what no, happened. No. But you, yeah, yeah. But you asked me to like offer some advice on how you could improve. And then you were, you happened to be in New York shortly after that. So we met up. And at the time, the practical developer wasn't much. But this was only back in December, I think. So this is not too long ago. But there was like 8,000 followers or something. So like obviously something notable, like something I did. But... But we didn't even like meet up with the idea that that's what I was doing. And it wasn't even something that was really central to what I was doing. But after we had our conversation and we like talked about code content and media and stuff, that actually really invigorated me to like put a lot more effort into it, which is so interesting. So like, that's great. Potentially none of this happens without you, Jeff. Oh. And also like you had just posted sort of a meta podcast episode where you talked about everything going into it. And that also like, you know, made me think about this stuff a little more. And also the notion of just doing like some project that didn't have to be massive. Like I work at a startup that has angel investors and stuff and like an impetus to grow, which is like fun, but like really frustrating and like not always the least stressful thing in the world. And our conversation and these sort of things made me a little more motivated to just do something that was relaxed and interesting and sort of therapeutic and allowed me to like get my voice heard if I I'm not sure I really cared that much about that but it certainly has been fun to like have a lot of people hearing me make fun of them and make fun of things they don't like or (laughs) or uh that sort of thing and I mean for a little while I was considering becoming a comedy writer after college like I dropped out of CS I expected to get into sitcom writing. I've always been a big fan of sitcoms. I think everyone is, but like that was my goal for a little while. And I wrote a few scripts and stuff and that was fun. And uh, I randomly got back into coding, I think, because like my roommate was learning to code and it kind of got me really excited about it again. And, And I found some forms of coding that were way more interesting to me than what I was learning in college. I learned that I really didn't like Java that much and I preferred other languages and maybe like it wasn't so stupid. But then I, but recently I got back into the part where I just sort of think it is stupid and get to just make fun of it and stuff. And it's been this whole sort of whirlwind, but it's all sort of coming together, you know, figuring it all out and all the followers and everybody are like along for the ride. And it's, it's really hilarious. I go to meetups and if anyone like knows who I am and mentions it, it seems like everyone has seen the O'Reilly meme and like, and that sort of thing. And I read an article in Business Insider about the whole thing, but it got all the facts wrong and they mentioned me by name, but they never even reached out to me. And it's kind of hilarious how big the whole thing is, but how like, (laughs) I've never talked about it really. And it's kind of just evolving. So Business Insider wrote an article about these O'Reilly covers and they just didn't even contact you? Yeah. And they I, they mentioned me by name as the only person mentioned in the article, but like just me, Ben Halper, not the practical developer. And like all the facts were wrong about who was making this and how they came to be, which is kind of just ridiculous. And I know like the way these things happen are that the journalist is in charge of putting out like six blog posts a day on it, the yes. website. And, but this sort of stuff is absolutely what i'm trying to avoid with everything that the practical developer is but yeah so like this gets us to like the conversation of volume versus quality these days you know for five or six or seven years we've had this content farm model for publications like huffington post or business insider where they're just like churning the crank all day long and maybe it you know they get a lot of page views out of it. But the media world is really getting shaken up right now as more and more people are getting their news from Facebook. So it's kind of interesting because what I find potentially rewarding about that ecosystem as more and more people are getting their news from Facebook is perhaps, and medium, perhaps, you know, we will have more of an emphasis on quality. Hopefully, I, I can't imagine that we would have a race 
to an even lower bottom than we've already reached. Oh, yeah. I fundamentally think that those content farm businesses are awful business models for anyone who's not like an expert in it. So like BuzzFeed is awesome at what they do and they presumably will be continue to be successful doing what they've pioneered and that sort of thing. But as everyone who copies them tries to do the same thing, they do terrible work. And I think it's like a terrible model. It's so inefficient. It's similar to like companies who try to put out a ton of apps. Each one just gets, you know, like... Well, so, but what's perverse is actually these are quite good businesses for the people at the top. Who it's bad business for is the commodity reporters or the commodity developers writing the crappy apps. But the person at the top can just keep churning the crank and there's no problem. Well, yeah, I think that works for a little bit. I think it fundamentally is a bad business model for like half of or like 90% like a few people come out of that all right but I think in general (laughs) it's a bad business model to be in and I've seen it sort of evolve like some companies some media companies like even like internet media companies that came up in the 90s and succeeded by doing good stuff have just sort of tried to copy BuzzFeed and everything and when you're the originator of the model you have a lot more insight into what's actually working rather than when you're just sort of one of the million copycats when you get into this whole like cargo cult philosophy where you're copying these practices like but when you have like the intrinsic understanding within the organization of what works and why it works you produce good stuff but when you're follow honor to the whole idea you're just copying ideas whether they're good or not and when you're you know when you're an insider you know that you put out stuff that's bad because nothing's perfect. But when you're an outsider copying, you copy everything. You copy the crappy stuff. You copy the good stuff. You just... Because it's it's hard to like differentiate from an outsider. And I think about like when I played sports, when I was, I was on my college football team and the outsider's opinions on what was working and what was not within our team and within like our organization, like within our recruiting efforts and stuff were so far off base. It was insane. But everyone had this like crazy, this opinion on it. And I think the same is true with copying BuzzFeed's model. Like it just doesn't work. Like it works because they've like really architected around it. And you're just like, Mm -hmm. you're just blindly copying. And I heard a nice anecdote from um, one of the people who started Y Combinator and how like once they started Y Combinator as like this new kind of crazy way of doing things that nobody really believed in at first. But then as soon as they started getting traction, everyone started copying all the stuff they were doing. Even the stuff they knew was the wrong stuff because they as an organization had some things that were going for them and some things that were just really not working for now. But like, because we can't do everything right, we're just going to like do this other thing for now. But the outsiders who were trying to just copy their model because it was successful copied the bad stuff like the stuff (laughs) the stuff they're putting out there that totally does not work but if you're not an insider with like making decisions on these sort of things you can't make the good decisions and getting back to like software i presume the listeners will be interested in this i think that's like fundamentally true with software as well like people really like copy ideas with only like 10% of the understanding of why they should do something. And you sort of have to do that. You can't like understand every element of the stack at every point. But if you don't know like why you're optimizing something or you don't know like why you're choosing something, like my website, for example, is super, super fast, but it's like a Ruby on Rails app, like a notoriously slow thing, but it's only slow at certain things. And, uh, but it's like brilliant for other things. And it's like, you know, I'm sort of, so-so on Rails and Ruby in general, but like, but it was a great choice because of the structure of this whole thing. But like to make speed and optimization the like number one priority by far, and then choose like this notoriously slow language, like I feel like you've got to really like have an idea behind what you're doing. And people get very, very caught up in the day-to-day of what's being argued about on Hacker News and just like whatever their various idols are saying about the languages and stuff and like what's good and what's not and what the React team is coming out with in JavaScript and if how that's great or whatever. And like, and just like choosing the wrong stuff because of that. And it sort of comes when you're like really in a hurry to get things done without 
and sometimes you just have to be in a hurry. You can't like sit back and make every decision like methodically. But the atmosphere that comes out of just copying what's good without like really having good purpose behind the choices really leads to like crappy, crappy, crappy software. In my opinion, I don't have years, decades of experience, but I certainly see the parallels between copying certain best practices in software, best practices like within your domain, which are just like very specific to use cases and like the decisions and open source software is usually an abstraction from the explicit reason for that within the company or within the organization of the individual that had that problem. But they like get treated as sort of blanket solutions for everything. And that's why like Rails is often chosen poorly for like the wrong projects. And that's why React, I think, has been chosen for like terrible projects. I see Angular and Ember and React being chosen for like these news websites, which just basically serve static content and like force you to download like two megabytes of JavaScript and like have everything on the page jump around, like unload. And part of that is just, you know, like who's making the decisions? Like this stuff has to be rushed out the door. Like we need this done by this date. Like, but all this goes into making really, really, really crappy software. And like, I don't know, like as I age, like crappy software, like physically makes me hurt. But running good maintainable software just is like the only way to do it. And for a while that being at a startup, I gave up a lot of that thinking I was sort of being innovative and did interesting things. And I've always like moved fast and that's sort of like needed in order to like get feedback and like have a reasonable rapid iteration cycle. And that's so important, but you really have to like constantly try to step back and like move slower than you think you should because mm. in order to actually move fast in the long run. And I think that's like true for like the organization as well as the like software engineers. And there has to be this amount of like feedback between them. And for me, like if anyone agrees with me on some of these subjects, they typically like enjoy the content I produce on the practical developer. So that's sort of where that all finds itself in the end. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a great place to stop. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for syndicating my content on Practical Dev. You have created a really nice interface that is certainly much better than the WordPress jank I have. So thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. And yeah, I look forward to continuing to read more material from the Practical Dev. And if any listeners are unfamiliar with it, you should go check it out, dev.to. Yeah, and thanks for having me. It's been really fun to sort of flesh out some of these ideas. Hopefully, the listeners appreciate some of the ranting. (laughs) And I think the one thing to end with is that I'm quite accessible. I'm not like always great at answering emails, but if you have any opinions on anything I'm doing or want me to like do something else or feature something or create a feature, just email me and tell me about it. And you should do that with every, everyone who you want to talk to. Like people in this industry are remarkably accessible in general. And uh, so email me if you have any questions or concerns. All right. Well, Ben Halpern, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation.